0: What are you doing a small town after the movie shows? A few powerful companies. Main Street is struggling. Monopolies Killed My Hometown. Welcome to episode seven of Monopolies Killed My Hometown. I'm your host, Andrew Cameron. And so just a reminder. With this podcast, I'm exploring how our decision to change our competition laws in the 1980s has led to the decline of small towns and small businesses. Specifically, I'm looking at my hometown of Amherst, Nova Scotia, and I'm looking at my experiences growing up here and then moving back to run my business. You know, ultimately, I want our small towns, small businesses, and people to have more control and agency over their own lives and futures. When we are governed by corporations headquartered elsewhere, we can lose control over our communities and ultimately our hope. I'm recording this Saturday, July 9th. Luckily, I'm recording right to my computer. We're on uh, day two of our massive Rogers internet outage. My cell phone's still not working, but I can still record this one. So the fact one company having problems shuts down so much of our economy and causes so many problems for everybody is something that we need to you know stop and think about. And again, circles back to my episode from last week, talking about thinking about our communities and our country as an ecosystem and a healthy ecosystem being in balance and competition laws being what lets us bring our communities back into balance when corporations and businesses amass too much power. We basically had one business have problem and that shut down cell phones, home internet, phones, the Interact Network, so businesses can't take debit. Like we've had massive outages because one company had problems. This all being said, I feel really bad for the software engineers and the people looking to actually fix the problem with Rogers. This has got to be horrible for them. Hopefully it gets resolved today But there is another conversation, especially around Rogers wanting to buy Shaw. We've got to think about this a whole lot more. Okay, back to the article and the things I want to look back at today. So I want to look at a document from 1971. The actual title is The Attack on American Free Enterprise System, more commonly known as the Powell Memorandum. was written by Lewis Powell for the Education Committee of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And this confidential memo was submitted two months before Lewis Powell was nominated to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court. And so my goals with this podcast is search through the Canadian history and our Canadian documents. And I chose this American document for this episode for two reasons. One, Canada tends to follow the path of the U.S. on economic issues. You know, we make our own political and economic decisions. You know, like, for example, in the great financial crash in 2008, we had different banking regulations, which may have insulated Canada from some of the worst effects of that crash. But we did enter into NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement we adopted most of the neoliberal thinking that came from the US, especially around competition policy and taxation and regulation. And I wanted to pick this one because the Powell memo is typically viewed as the call to arms for the capitalist reactionary movement starting in the 1970s. And second, in the last episode, I talked about viewing competition through the lens of of an ecosystem. And that I want the types of competition that make the whole forest or ecosystem stronger and better. And I made a comment that in a forest, you know, the largest trees can't go change the natural laws to prevent smaller trees from competing with the largest trees. But that in our society, once someone masses enough power, they can change the rules to enshrine their power to the detriment of everyone else. And ultimately, this memo basically is viewed as providing the outline of how big business financiers, the oligarchs actually plan to amass more power and to change the rules for their benefit. So that's why I wanted to look at this one. The other thing that's kind of connected in why I want to talk about this one is because it is the Chamber of Commerce. In Canada, we have the Canadian Chamber of Commerce and we have a lot of local chambers of commerce. I'm actually a member of two of them, one in Amherst and one in Yarmouth, Nova Scotia. But one of the things I wanted to bring up is I saw a note just the other day that the Amherst Chamber of Commerce is now either merging or expanding to include what was once served by the Spring Hill Chamber of Commerce and the Oxford Chamber of Commerce, and I believe the Pugwash Chamber of Commerce. So this is where I've always talked about, as we lose our small businesses, even smaller communities lose the ability to make decisions and have control over their own communities, right? Like Spring Hill had their own chamber of commerce, but there's not enough independent local businesses to sustain that chamber of commerce. So now they have to merge and become part of the Amherst chamber of commerce. So this happened this week too. And so we can still see some of these effects happening today in our communities. And so I thought that was an interesting one. We're going to talk more about the Canadian chamber of commerce as we move along in other episodes too, but. Let's get back to this one, the Powell Memorandum. So looking at this, this, again, will probably end up being a two-part episode. This week, I'm probably gonna just look at the ridiculousness of the whole memo and the thesis underlying it. Then next week, I'll circle back to the steps in the plan that was proposed in the Powell Memorandum. So let's go back. Remember, the title of this memo is The Attack on the American Free Enterprise System. And this was a confidential memo written by Powell at the request of the Chairman of the Education Committee for the US Chamber of Commerce. The title of this memo gives away the thesis right at the start, but it's important to have a quick refresh of what was actually happening at this time that could have made Powell feel this way and what made the business community open to this message. And there are others who can and will offer more detailed analysis of all the other factors happening at this time, but quick summary. Advocacy groups were gaining power, and the government was legislating and working for those groups. The civil rights movement in the 60s secured gains for the marginalized communities. The feminist movement was making gains for women. The environmental movement secured the creation of the EPA and all the environmental regulations that came with that. The consumers' right movement, led by Ralph Nader, was securing wins to benefit individuals like seatbelts in cars, no lead paint, plus... You know, the Vietnam War was still happening and there was massive protests against the war. And so the memo claims that the American free enterprise system, capitalism, is under attack and that business must fight back, right? From the very first section titled Dimensions of the Attack. And the first line of the whole memo is, No thoughtful person can question that the American economic system is under broad attack. This varies in scope, intensity, in the techniques employed, and in the level of visibility. That's the first line. And then further on from the sources of the attack. The sources are varied and diffused. They include, not unexpectedly, the communists, new leftists, and other revolutionaries who would destroy the entire system, both political and economic, These extremists of the left are far more numerous, better financed, and increasingly are more welcomed and encouraged by other elements of society than ever before in our history. But they remain a small minority and are not yet the principal cause for concern. The most disquieting voices joining the chorus of criticism come from perfectly respectable elements of society, from the college campus, the pulpit, the media, the intellectual and literary journals, the arts and sciences, and from politicians. In most of these groups, the movement against the system is participated in only by minorities. Yet these often are the most articulate, the most vocal, the most prolific in their writing and speaking. So we haven't really gotten into what the actual attack is. And it's also like, if you look back on it, the actual concept that big business was under threat and actually was going to lose is really just kind of insane. I started reading the book by a uh, David Geddes, the man who broke capitalism about Jack Welch and what he did to GE and General Electric and ultimately what happened when the rest of the business community followed him. And in this, Geddes made a comment that, I think it was in 1980, GE's total revenue was 1% of the US GDP. To think of the size and scope of that, that's one company, I think it employed 400,000 people. Like, it's massive. To think about it being under attack from... College campus, the pulpit, the media, like the power between the two is so disproportionate. There was really no threat to GE from these, but this memo was written to make people feel that way. Because for me, when I reread this memo, the whole thing just felt familiar. It really read like any other moral panic that is sort of ginned up by, well, whoever right? So like some of the other moral panics I remember, you know, there was the stranger danger in the 1980s. There was the frivolous lawsuits in the U.S. from like the 1990s. Dungeons and Dragons was a moral panic. Video games causing violence, right? The, you know, quicksand was a moral panic at the playground when I was a kid, which taking Norm MacDonald's joke really didn't seem to become as much of a problem as we thought it was going to be, right? And so the thing is, most often moral panics are used to convince people they're under attack. Typically, in a moral panic, the perceived threat is so much greater than the actual threat. And once people have been convinced they're under attack, it's easy to manipulate and get them to act. Right? So like if we circle back to this, the first line. No thoughtful person can question that the American economic system is under broad attack. And this is complete with the footnote. The American political system of democracy under the rule of law is also under attack, often by the same individuals and organizations who seek to undermine the enterprise system. You read that and you see that there's nothing backing up that claim, that the system is actually under attack, but they're written in a way that if you were to disagree with it, then you're not a thoughtful person. And especially when you have somebody that's going to be nominated to be on the Supreme Court of the United States in two months, calling somebody who doesn't agree with them not a thoughtful person, it's going to prime people to agree so that they can be a thoughtful person. And then in the second paragraph of the memo, he says, There have always have been some who opposed the American system and preferred socialism or some form of statism, communism, or fascism. Also, there always have been critics of the system whose criticism has been wholesome and constructive, so as long as the objective was to improve rather than to subvert or destroy. Right, so even that paragraph basically presents it as there is either capitalism, socialism, or communism. But luckily, though, I mean, he did allow for people whose criticisms are wholesome and constructive, those are acceptable. But that's, to me, that's what activists were doing. Nader was trying to reform the system and and improve the system for consumers. The civil rights movement was trying to improve the system for marginalized communities. And the environmental movement wanted to improve the system for everybody. And these changes are what Powell complains about through the whole memo. And so I guess You know, the activists who wanted to reform the system to benefit themselves were doing it wrong. Right? They weren't doing it in the way that the business community wanted them to do it. And so this, to me, is a relevant thing to keep in mind as we move through our review of the Competition Act in Canada and in the UK and the US and the EU. Because one tactic that the business community and the incumbents will use is to try to prevent other voices from being involved or being heard. And that's what Powell is also complaining about in this memo. U.S. government listened to consumer advocates, civil rights, and environmental movement at the expense of business and corporations. Right, and so again, let's circle back to the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. This is happening now. They've called for an upcoming review of the Competition Act to be completed by an quote-unquote arm's-length expert panel to develop recommendations on potential changes to the Competition Act. And they referenced the Wilson panel, which led the last review in 2008. And the Wilson panel consisted of five people, one was former CEO of Bell Canada and chairman of the board for Nortel. Another was co-owner of the Calgary Flames, chairman of the board for Canadian Natural Resources. Another is the chair of the board for Open Text Corporation, former board member of Manulife Corporation. Uh, another is the former executive chair for Sun Life Financial, current CEO and president of BDC. And the last one was of current chair for TD Bank. Right, and so having a panel dominated by business people making recommendations on the competition policy. In my mind, this is like, you know, if my daughter came to me and my wife and said, you know, we need an independent panel compromising of neighborhood kids to determine the bedtimes for all the neighborhood kids. And we know this panel is coming back with a bedtime much later than all the parents want for the kids. We know they're going to rule in their own favor. And another panel that's made up of business people only are going to come back with recommendations that more than likely just benefit the business community. But if they don't do that, they're at least gonna make sure they come back without giving up too much. And that's not what we need right now. You and I, our voices would not be heard in a review led by an equivalent panel like that, right? So. We can't let this happen. We need all sorts of voices. And I believe Commissioner Boswell is sincere, but make sure that we hear a lot of voices and a lot of different voices in our Canadian review of the act. Okay, let's come back to the Powell memo. And so, like I said, when I read it, this reads like a moral panic document. And so Michael Hobbs is a journalist and co-host of the Maintenance Phase podcast with Aubrey Gordon and formerly co-hosted You're Wrong About with Sarah Marshall. I'm a big fan of both pods. And he wrote an article about how to spot a moral panic while it's happening. He identified four key traits to look for when identifying them. And so the traits are, first, low stakes. Typically, the examples of moral panic don't have serious consequences or may not have actually had any consequences. Number two, irrelevant examples. Again, in this, the examples typically sound like they're proving the argument, but on further investigation, they don't. Three, misleading statistics. The data that is used doesn't hold up to rigorous investigation. And four, false equivalents, so equating two unequal problems as being equal. So I wanna use this framework and just pick out some sections of the memo that apply to each of these, just so you can kind of get a sense of why I do just think this is a moral panic document. So let's start with the first one, low stakes. So here's a quote from the memo. A frontal assault was made on our government or system of justice in the free enterprise system by Yale professor Charles Reich in his widely publicized book, The Greening of America. So someone wrote a book that criticized the enterprise system, and that means the system is under attack. Another one. This memorandum is not the place to document in detail the tone, character, or intensity of the attack. The following quotations will suffice to give one a general idea. Although new leftist spokesmen are succeeding in radicalizing thousands of the young, the great cause for concern is the hostility of respectable liberals and social reformers. It is the sum total of their views and influence which could indeed fatally weaken or destroy the system. That's the first quote. Second quote. A visiting professor from England gave a series of lectures entitled The Ideological War Against Western Society, in which he documents the extent to which members of the intellectual community are waging ideological warfare against the enterprise system and the values of the Western society. So somebody presented a lecture. Like I think if those documented examples were actually that bad, Powell would have quoted or cited what is actually happening. Instead, he just highlighted that one professor gave a series of lectures on this topic, right? And here's another quote. Favorite current targets are proposals for tax incentives through changes in depreciation rates and investment credits. These are usually described in the media as tax breaks, loopholes, or tax benefits for the benefit of business. So a couple things here, arguing against changes to the tax code sounds like reasonable criticism and modification to the system, not the destruction of capitalism. And I thought he wanted constructive criticism. Second, right, the media is pointing out facts and making big business feel bad. And that's what's going to destroy the free enterprise system? Yeah, something's off on that one. Okay, number two, let's go to section two, irrelevant examples. So here's an example from under the quote unquote, the apathy and default of business section. The painfully sad truth is that businesses, including the boards of directors and the top executives of corporations at all levels, often have responded, if at all, by appeasement, ineptitude, and ignoring the problem. There are, of course, many exceptions to this sweeping generalization. So here's a point he's claiming that people are, you know, appeasing and, you know, just letting the reformers get away with things. But there's a whole lot of examples of people not doing this. So which is it, right? It sounds like it's proving the point, but he just said there's many people not doing this. And here's another one. Columnist Stuart Alsop writes about Yale. Yale, like every other major college, is graduating scores of bright young men who despise the American political and economic system. And further on, he goes to say, many do enter the enterprise system in business and the professions. And for the most part, they quickly discover the fallacies of what they've been taught. So sure, that's one way to think about that. The other way to describe this is, quote unquote, person changes their opinion as they grow older right? We do this all the time and it's not a threat to society. Also, and this one's going to sound very, very, very familiar. Footnote 11 says, on many campuses, freedom of speech has been denied to all who express moderate or conservative viewpoints. So if I have time, in the episode, we'll circle back to this because this is a common thing we're still hearing today. Okay. Third category, misleading statistics. Here's a couple stats that have been quoted. So a recent poll of students on 12 representative campuses reported that almost half the students favored socialization of basic U.S. industries. So that's how the stat was presented in the Powell memo. Sounds kind of bad, almost half. But that means, like another way to present this stat is, more than half the students polled at 12 representative campuses were against the socialization of basic U.S. industries. Again, in democracy, typically, if more than 50% want to do something, that's what we do, right? And then on top of this, there's so many other issues and questions with this poll. How did they define socializing basic U.S. industries? What industries are in there? How many students were actually interviewed? What industries did they mean when they thought of basic U.S. industries? What campuses were they at, right? Like, there's a whole lot behind that stat. Here's another good one. So quoting, The number of speeches made on college campuses by avowed communists in 1970 was 100. And then follows up in another line, quoting, There were, of course, many hundreds of appearances by leftists and ultra liberals who urged the types of viewpoints indicated earlier in the memorandum. End quote. Okay, let's unpack this one. In 1970, a hundred communists spoke at universities or colleges in the U.S. Right? So we need some further clarification to know if this is actually a problem or not. Do we know how many students attended these speeches? Were they protested by speeches? What did they talk about? How many different speakers were there? Was it one person saying the same message at 100 different campuses? Right? Were these speeches on different campuses? Were they spread out across the country? Is this more or less than last year? What is the trend? And what does many hundreds of appearances by leftists and ultra-liberals actually mean? But okay, let's say we got all those answers and we determined that this is actually a problem. The actual scope of this issue is minuscule. So 100 speeches in a year means that one speech was given every 3.65 days. And in 1970, there were 2,525 colleges and universities in the US. So if each of the speeches was done on a different campus, less than 4% of the campuses had a speech given by a communist. That's nothing. And this leads into the last category for spotting moral panics, false equivalency. After the stat about communist speeches on campus, Powell states in the memo that, quote, there was no corresponding representation of American business or indeed by individuals or organizations who appeared in support of the American system of government and business, end quote. Really? So 100 pro-business people did not speak on all of the campuses over the whole year. There was no advertising on campus for any products. There was no restaurants, no businesses on campus. There were no job fairs. There was no recruitment of university students. You know, there's no corporate sponsorship of any events, no advertising at football games or basketball games or anything. No buildings were named after business people, no alumni associations full of business people and people pro free enterprise system were involved in the campus at all, who was on the board of the directors of the universities right? There were no co-op placements or work terms for students. There were no pro-business professors in the business departments. Like, this is the false equivalency of, well, those 100 communists gave a speech, but 100 business people didn't get to give speeches, so therefore equal. But what else did the business and pro-free enterprise system get to do that, we'll say, people against it didn't, right? So I'm not going to keep going on this because getting near the end of this episode, but I guess looking back on this, Powell wrote this memo to scare the business community and to scare the business community to act. And in the 1970s, there may have been stuff going on that needed to be reformed and done. You know, like the system needed to be criticized and improved, which they asked for. But in the rest of the memo, Powell actually goes through and lays out a step-by-step plan of what the business community needs to do to regain and retake power which they then went and did over the last 40 years. So in the next episode, I'm gonna go back to the memo and work through what those steps were and kind of see how they played out and what was done with that. It's quite interesting because it's almost like the business community was telling everybody else to offer criticisms to improve the system and that they went out and basically restructured the whole thing. Like it's a weird dichotomy. Anyways, Check back in a couple weeks, so please subscribe in your favorite podcast listening app. Let anybody else know that you think may enjoy this podcast. And we'll see you back in a few weeks. Take care, everyone. What are you doing in a small town after the movie shows through? A few powerful companies. Main Street is struggling. Monopolies killed my hometown.